0: Welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Gianna. And I'm Bianca. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for coming back and joining us for episode two. Or if you're new and didn't listen to episode one. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? <laughs> Damn glad to meet you what's the haps bianca how how's your week what's the haps (laughs) what's the haps (laughs) is that what the new kids are saying that's the new kids the the,
1: no the cool kids the
0: cool kids are saying i'm
1: actually 100 years old ah
0: well what's been going on this week what's what's new with you Ooh,
1: you know just bopping around the house working out at home i made some brownies this week that were like kind of spicy brownies. Yeah, they were really good. Um, yeah. They had the
0: chili powder in them, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I liked them. I thought they were good. Mm-hmm. You know, other than that, the state of Oklahoma started to open up. So which means I'll probably be spending more time at home because I don't really want to go out, out there. <laughs> Our mom
0: went out today to do some grocery shopping, and she came back like all in like a dizzy. Yeah, and she was like, "Oh my god, like all the crazies are out." And I'm like, "Well, like Oof. I, I don't know what what else you expected for first day opening. Yeah, you know, the doors. Yeah, all the crazies come out first.
1: Well, it's hard because like I want to. I want to go out. You know what I mean? Like I I would like to go. Actually, my hairstylist was posting on Instagram that she was starting to reschedule people. I was like, oh man, it'd be really great to like go get my hair done. Still, mom was saying that it's hard. Like now people don't want to keep six feet apart and all this stuff. Like we maybe we can go out, but like we're certainly not in the clear. Right. And I think that is definitely the
0: difference. It's like, sure, like We knew that we were all going to reach this point where we were going to have to start slowly integrating back into, you know, society, but at the same time, things can't go exactly how they were before and they shouldn't, Mm -hmm. um, for the better, but yeah, just complete 180, I think, people already
1: throwing their, (laughs) wow, are you a TikToker? Yeah, totally. Oh, I'm happy for you thanks <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah I think just people like already throwing their face masks like out the window yeah
1: right it's a little bit crazy but these are unprecedented times I must say you know what I saw I actually saw this meme or something that said if someone says in these unprecedented times one more time and I was like yeah honestly though I gotta be careful about it. we can't say these unprecedented <laughs> times because everybody knows what time it is I know shut the fuck up
0: Gianna <laughs> That will be the one F-bomb we drop in this episode,
1: we promise. Yeah, right. (laughs) I promise. We're going to work on it. So actually speaking of, how do we feel like our recording went last time for the first episode?
0: Yeah, I think obviously
1: we have a lot of
0: things that we need to work on. Actually, even just in this second episode we have created a better setup, we think, and and what Mm. we're able to have so far that can bring you guys better sound qualities and help us get a little bit more organized. I think in this episode as well, you all will notice our flow will be a little bit different. And especially this episode is going to be very question and answer based Mm -hmm. as we actually start getting into the content of things. So hopefully starting to provide you guys with more continuity as we move forward. But
1: mm-hmm.
0: I think we both know we have things that we want to work on. Yeah. And we want to keep it casual, yeah. <laughs> obviously, at the same time and staying true to ourselves. But, you know, while also bringing you guys the the important messages <laughs> and content we're trying to bring. So.
1: Yeah. It was funny because the one thing that our mom suggested was that we we curse less. <laughs> Which is a definitely a valid point. Yeah. So let us know if you're offended by it. We'll try to not have it happen as as often. Yeah. We'll try. Uh, <laughs> but I think we did overall get good feedback, which thank you guys, too, for everyone who listened and sent in some thoughts and feedback and questions for us. It was much appreciated. So, like Gianna said, we're working on it. We're just yeah.
0: trying to figure this out, man. I just, in general, I'm, I'm a work in progress right now. So Yeah. So, really... Thank you, guys. Thank you to, like, all our friends who especially gave us really helpful and constructive criticism <laughs> in moving forward, yeah. so it, it
1: truly is is really helpful in starting mm-hmm. something like this, so. Also, our friends have been sending us, like, Animal Crossing museums, which is so, so cute. I don't know anything about Animal Crossing, because Gianna and I didn't really grow up playing video games or our video games are like computer games like Club Penguin and Lizzie McGuire computer <laughs> games and things like that. So but I'm really Animal Crossing seems really cute. And it's funny, my colleagues at work, they were talking about doing like a type of online engagement with blathers since our director, his daughter pointed out that he looks and acts a lot like blathers, I guess, <laughs> in Animal Crossing. So keep sending them to us because they're super cute. I really like them. Yeah, they are really cute. I really like the people. <laughs> yeah,
0: they're so cute just
1: mopping around. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's, it's funny. You know, video games are not something that is a part of our daily lives. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it never has been, but I know there are so many video games out there with, like, little art history nuggets, especially, yeah. like, a lot of, like, surrealist stuff.
1: Yeah. Um, or, like, medieval games. Mm-hmm.
0: But, yeah, so thank you guys for sending those. They're they're super cute. Other than that, it's been a pretty chill week. You've um, had a lot going on. I've, I've had a lot going on, but it's it's been good. I think it's very bittersweet times for me right now. I am going to have my last day of work next week, mm-hmm. and it's also my finals week, which is obviously, like, really exciting. I've obviously known that I'm going to need to part ways with my museum when I graduate, so uh, it's definitely time, but I owe a lot to that institution, and I love the people that I work with, so and it's hard to get to say goodbye to them right now mm-hmm. in the way that I want to. But obviously, I'm going to like, they can't get rid of me. I'm going to pop in all the time. Totally. Because <laughs> what else am I doing? So yeah, bittersweet times, but it's been been good. Good. I'm glad you're feeling good. I'm feeling good. Closing stuff up. You know, it was funny. We were actually on a Skype call with one of our friends, two of our friends the other day. And I was saying, really, how fortunate I am to have started this podcast during this time. I think it really is going to help I think me mentally and moving forward, you know, life can be hard after graduation. And I think we all know that just because you have a college degree, the world does not owe you anything. So Mm -hmm. I'm getting kind of ready for that swift kick in the ass, you know. Um, But (laughs) this kind of project feels like at least I'm putting my energy into something that I went to school for. Yeah. And I think it's
1: really going to help me and, and moving forward and help help build the old resume. Oh, for sure. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, guys, I started us a LinkedIn. So, you know, if you're trying to look cool and professional, follow us on LinkedIn.
0: Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, I actually don't have a personal LinkedIn right now, admittedly.
1: The co-host doesn't even have a LinkedIn. It's so on my... No pressure, guys. It's
0: <laughs> on my to-do list, okay? <laughs> I've been a little bit busy reading your thick thesis. It's thick. It is thick. With two C's. Two C's. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, I think with that being said guys, we are, we're gonna jump right into it. So today, as you might have seen on our Instagram, Bianca was asking you all some questions to introduce you guys into our topic for today, which is Bianca's graduate thesis, Judy Chicago's The Dinner Party. So today, it's gonna be really exciting. You guys are gonna get to learn a lot about Bianca, you know, obviously what her interests are. We are going to talk about the first half or not even first half to the intro and in the first body chapter. Great of her thesis. So yeah, so I've been doing a little bit of light reading
1: over this week um but it's actually been really good and because she hasn't read it yet guys no, I- she didn't read the whole thing when i finished which i guess i don't blame her but i was looking back i was reading it this morning i was like oh man this is so good no it really is good <laughs> and so i it's a bad sister moment but no because i taught when we were living together when i was writing this and I was just talking about it nonstop because I'd be walking around the kitchen and be like, you know what would be a really good point is if I, like, talked about this or, you know.
0: Yeah, so I didn't read it, but, like, I lived it with you in a way. And maybe that's even better.
1: Because that whole year that second year
0: of us living together our dining room table was just like covered in these like stacks of thick feminist theory and i was just like jesus christ like you got another one like and you're like i like books
1: i do i really prefer actually i was thinking that too when i was getting ready for this i was like oh man i wish i had access to the library I miss kind of having these tower of books around. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's something about it that just makes me feel comforted. And if I forget something or it's just, it's so nice to just open a book and remember where it was. When you start writing a project like this, you kind of remember, oh, that's from this book on page 39 because you're just looking at it so much all the time. And when I was getting ready for this, I was like, oh man, I I need my books. I I think (laughs) books are validating Like
0: you said, physically, physically, like they're proof that you are like physically (laughs) doing research. Yeah, when you just, (laughs) you know what I mean. It's different when you just have your little bookmarks or your tab open on your computer, but like when you have like a book, you're like, ooh, I'm using this whole book. When I'm like, you're using like one quote or one page.
1: I also, I mean, I think whenever I printed articles too, I would have to print them because I like to write on them and i'm a big highlighter so it always like kind of astounded me when my colleagues would bring just their laptop to class and i was like yo like where's where's your stuff i need stuff around me i feel like i was the one in class that had my book case and my pencils and my binders and my notebooks and my folders and all this stuff and everyone else just had their nice clean mac and i was a mess as i move forward in college
0: i Really, kind of stopped with hard copies, and I did I just that. move solely to my computer. But in retrospect, I think that was a problem because <laughs> <laughs> now I have to use glasses when I'm reading a oh, lot on the computer. Yeah. Especially when I took, I took an online class that totally messed up my vision. That's wow. Um, having to do so much like reading online, so my eyes have calmed down a little bit. But yeah, protect your eye health. This is a cautionary. Protect detail. your eye health. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. Um, You you college kiddos, protect your eye health. And also, I think just for those students at OSU, the interlibrary loan... Yes, ILL. ...is so good Uh. because you, like, don't have to go find your book in the library catalog. Like, I literally don't even
1: know how to do that. No, you know what? I started out, when I started using the library at OSU... I was like, I'm gonna go find this book on my own. I don't need any help or whatever. That's like, a I can damn lie. I was like, I can find it myself. No, 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 no. So then, I think one of my professors was like, you know, you can just go pick it up. Like, you order it, and then it's ready for you at the call desk, and then you just go pick up your mountain of books. And that was life changing. Well, I don't know why it was so hard for me to find stuff. I know how a library system wo- works, it's like big ass library. No, I know, but like n- nothing was ever where I needed it to be. Like, I never found one book that I just bound on my own. Well, so also with the interlibrary loan too,
0: you can order books through the library that they actually don't have in the library. So it's really cool. Like if you want this book off of Amazon, you can like take that code from that book. Mm -hmm. And depending on, it it doesn't always work for books that were made within the year. So you couldn't Mm -hmm. get books that were made in like 2019 or 2020 all the time. So It just offers you, like, a range of different resources, so So, really Yeah, if you're a
1: college kid and you don't know that you can get books from other libraries, please utilize that, because I don't think I knew that until grad school. Yeah. Which is a big help. Yeah, it was, like, magic. I, like, cried the day I found
0: (laughs) out about that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I think that we are just going to get into it, so. (laughs) Finally. You ready? I'm ready. You ready? Okay. Um, Yeah. So, Bianca, <laughs> so. so I really just want to know, first off, why and how did you decide to write your thesis
1: on Judy Chicago's The Dinner Party? So, The Dinner Party is super strange in that it's extremely controversial, but super well known. If anyone has taken an art history class, you probably have seen The Dinner Party, and If you go to museums a lot or you are into feminist art, you probably have heard of Judy Chicago and the dinner party. So I actually wasn't really planning on writing my thesis on the dinner party, though. I was able to attend the 2016 Women's March in Washington, or I guess it was 2017, and I thought I really wanted to write about these kind of protest signs and the history of protest art because we were seeing so much of it at the time that I started grad school. So I thought I was going to write about that, and I took an independent study with a professor to kind of learn about the history of protest and text and imagery, but it wasn't really going anywhere. And then in my first semester, I took this theory and methods class and we had our final paper was to write about people's perspectives on the piece or artist had changed over time because art history tends to have these different trends like at one point it was really big to write bios on artists but now that's like forbidden like you know you're not allowed you're not going to get anywhere if you write a bio about an artist so this whole project was about changing perspectives and i don't even remember really why I decided on the dinner party. I don't remember if I had been looking at it recently or just reading about Judy or something. So I wrote about that for my theory paper. And then in my second semester, I took this class on ornament, which we will do an episode on at some point. And I also wrote about the dinner party for this ornamental class. And then came time to get my materials ready to write a thesis proposal and things like that, I was like, why don't I just write about the dinner party? Like, I can't believe that I've already written two 20-ish page papers on the dinner party. And they're both about kind of different topics within the piece and encompassing contemporary feminist practices. So then in the end, it worked out to use those two first year papers as the base for my project overall. And then My ornament paper became kind of my second chapter, and my theory paper became the intro and chapter one, which we'll uh, talk about today.
0: Ah, great. Nice little (laughs) overview there. I love it.
1: Wow, thanks. You're welcome.
0: (laughs) So I really want to know, and obviously we're going to talk about it, but the dinner party really fits into a very complicated part of history that maybe Mm -hmm. we think isn't so complicated because when we look back at the dinner party, or when we're taught about feminist art, we perhaps sometimes start at this piece. So I really want to talk about, just to start off, let's talk about the piece itself. When did it first premiere? And and really,
1: how does it fit into this history? So the piece premiered in March of 1979 at SF MoMA in California, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And It's done by Judy Chicago, so she, at the time she was in her 30s, uh, and she was working on this project, and Judy Chicago had gone to school in California and was working with contemporary male artists, and she was really having a hard time kind of finding this place where where she felt like she belonged. Her professors were telling her to tone it down, that her work was too feminist-minded or represented female anatomy too much. So she was getting all these different critiques and couldn't find a way to fit in with her male contemporaries. So in around 73, 74, Judy Chicago started doing a lot of research on women's history and found that extremely difficult. At the time, there, not that there was no women's history, but it wasn't published extensively. It wasn't written about extensively. It wasn't necessarily taught to her when she was in graduate school like she didn't have a gender women's studies class she could take to learn about the history of art and and women's art so she was really carving this out not for herself and she thought of it as carving it out for kind of the greater good but at the time you know all this initial research felt very much on her so she started working on this project and then it took four, four to five-ish years to totally come to fruition and, and be completed. Wow, that's crazy. It's wild.
0: I, I want to talk about the woman herself. Let's talk about Judy. Mm-hmm. Um, on Instagram, we asked a question. First, do you know who Judy Chicago is or what do you know about her? I think people are really... F- maybe familiar with the name or they recognize the name, Mm -hmm. but let's get into to her. What do we know about Judy?
1: Yeah, well, like I said, she went to school in Southern California. That's where she went to graduate school. She's had an actually a really, really prolific career, but she is not at MoMA in New York. She's not in the Met. She's not at Whitney. She's not in the Walker. She's not really in these big museums of modern and contemporary art. So even the Dinner Party, which we'll talk about later, was finally purchased in 2002 after being in storage, essentially, for decades. And now it's on view at the Brooklyn Museum, but even that is kind of segregated from the rest of the museum. So Judy Chicago has a ton of other bodies of work. She has a lot of other series, but that's not necessarily widely found. Maybe she has a couple works on paper here and there. She ha- she does do a lot of work with the National Museum for Women in the Arts now, but she's she's been really focused on the empowerment and the growth of the history of women throughout her career. I think that's really important because when we look at Judy Chicago, we tend to focus on this kind of stagnant place that the dinner party exists in and her whole career she's been trying to get out from under that and lift women and an inclusive women's history throughout her art and she's also um judy chicago's jewish so she also has a lot of series that deal with kind of her faith she has a holocaust series so her work is is super interesting outside of the dinner party as well yeah absolutely
0: and i think just as as we talk about her and after we talk about your thesis, we're going to talk about more ways in, in which Judy is creating work and being actively involved in the mm-hmm. contemporary art scene. But the more that I come out of the academic setting and obviously as an inspiring feminist artist myself, I am interested in Judy's work and I see these other roles that she's taking on, providing scholarships and foundations yeah. you know, for other things. So she really is such an interesting figure as an artist, a
1: pioneering feminist activist, and mm-hmm. a writer. And she's really self-critical too, which we can talk about, but she she doesn't claim to be perfect by any means. And it's hard, I think, when maybe, I don't know want to say the whole of art history, but when we talk about feminist art history, we start with her. We start with the dinner party because it's that groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. She does not see herself as... Not that she doesn't take credit for her work, but she is constantly growing as a person and an artist and an educator too. So I don't think it's fair that we always kind of place these second wave feminist contexts like onto her, onto her research. And I think she's constantly trying to prove that she's above that and working more and still in the contemporary art scene very much so. Right, right.
0: Which is, I think, how we really view and analyze her work as well, and which I think is what your thesis does too. So with that being said, welcome us into the dinner party. So really, let's talk about what happened after it was unveiled in 1979. You said Mm -hmm. that it was put into storage for
1: a while. So how did it get out of storage yeah. what what's the next phase for us so it's so wild because it was supposed to go on tour right after it premiered and it was so controversial right after it premiered that the tour that was supposed to happen in the year of 79 dropped every place it was supposed to be basically then it went into storage for about a year came out of storage to go on an international tour finally then it went back into storage and it wasn't until 1996 that it reopened in LA for a show called Sexual Politics which was kind of a, an another unveiling if you will of women's art and feminist art history even though it it hadn't really been that long i mean 20 years to develop this kind of women's art so then in 2002 the piece was bought by Elizabeth Sackler. So, the Sacklers, some people may know, they're a really interesting family right now. They've been part of the opioid crisis, the Purdue Pharma scandal, but Elizabeth Sackler is kind of distanced from her family. Not that she hasn't benefited from the name or anything like that, but she is, she's different from that big pharma kind of pocket, I guess, of the Sacklers. So, At the Brooklyn Museum is where it resides now. It was donated by Elizabeth with the foundation of the Elizabeth Sackler Center for Feminist Art. So that wing is within the Brooklyn Museum. And then the dinner party resides within that wing. So it's really interesting when you walk into the Sackler Center. The center is basically like a big square kind of. And then the dinner party is this big triangle That resides within the square. So it's fit in the center of the square. And you walk in, and there's kind of this tunnel, if you will, that welcomes you to the dinner party. And so they have all these like beautifully embroidered banners that hang and kind of introduce these themes that will be present when you arrive at the main event, basically. So the the banners in this tunnel kind of act as like a foyer that you would presumably enter as if you were going to a real dinner party, right? So then you walk into this big tent-like structure. And I was actually surprised when I finally saw it in person, like how small the, the tent was. The piece itself is enormous. So you walk in and it's a big triangular table and each side of the triangle is 48 feet. And then the table itself sits on this pedestal of porcelain tiles so you walk in and the tent is kind of it's it feels pretty low. It feels the tent actually feels pretty encroaching on your space, which is really interesting because when you see images of it, you would actually think that it's in this like big dark room all by itself. So the dinner party, as I said, is a big triangle. And on each side, there there are plates that represent 39 women from history that when Judy Chicago was doing research, thought that they kind of represented a development within these different cultures So the history of women and women's art. So in addition to those 39 place settings that we see at the table, there are 999 other names of women on the tiles on the floor that the table rests on. So there are all these other names and this is just a project for us to start thinking about all these women of history and at the time Judy Chicago just didn't have the means or the you know there was there just wasn't enough information out there to represent all 1000 names on the table so the idea of the dinner party was actually started from this idea that Judy Chicago had of the Last Supper. So it started as kind of a reinvention or rethinking of the Last Supper and and representative of this cultural swallowing of women. So instead of women being consumed and and told from the viewpoint of those who have traditionally done the cooking throughout history, Judy Chicago's kind of inverting that and playing with that as she puts these women in place settings yeah just amazing. it was there's- yeah it's a lot to describe too so sorry if that that whole first point was really drawn out but this piece is so intense like there are so many moving parts the whole structure of it is enormous and then there's the play settings and the table runners and how you have to walk around it like it really is a monumental sculpture so it's kind of hard and takes a long time to kind of work through and describe like all these different pieces that go along when you experience this piece right well and and with that being
0: said that's why you wrote like what 90 yeah. pages on this yeah piece? which is
1: nothing you know what i mean like it's not that's nothing there are there are hundreds of books four books from the artist herself written about the piece
0: yeah so now i and i have a lot more questions for you but going off of that Just in what you said about Judy herself writing so much about this piece, I want to talk a little bit about the backlash that the dinner party got in relationship to the historical context and the time of second wave feminism, what was going on there. And also, as someone who has studied and read Judy's writings really, you know, a lot to write your thesis, Um, I'm just curious... In, in the tone of her works, is, does it feel very argumentative or is it just very factual? And I think as you stated, Judy has worked her whole career to get out from under the shadow that the dinner party has created yeah. to continue to be a practicing artist because she's yeah. got, Judy's got more shit to say. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I, I'm just, I'm a little bit curious about what you thought in in, in reading her her. Books.
1: So the dinner party is extremely controversial. Basically, when you look at the piece, each of those 39 women are represented in the form of dinnerware. So they have these table runners that say their name, like Sappho, Judith, Georgia O'Keeffe. So there are these really famous names inscribed on these runners. And then the physical plate is a ceramic plate that represents the woman or the culture she comes from or the body of work that she produced. So many of them are actually meant to represent the shape of a vulva. And not all of them, though. I will say not every single plate is in the shape of a vulva. Some of them are in the shape of a butterfly. There's one that's a piano. So there was a lot of of backlash immediately against the piece because people thought when it premiered it was cliche, it was bad art, it just simply wasn't made well. Then the dinner party went into storage, went on tour, came back out, and as the development of feminist theory and feminist history kind of became a little bit more popular amongst writers and art historians, there was a lot of critique for kind of limiting women to the shape of their anatomy. So people were saying when it premiered again that this is not representative of all women. Women don't think with their vulvas. This is very degrading. And that was coming from the perspective of women and art historians and feminists. And then it's also important to acknowledge the lack of racial and cultural diversity within the piece. So Alice Walker wrote the Color Burden. Gianna, yesterday, Gianna was trying to. She was like, "Who's that person you cited?" She was like, "Alice Smith." I was like, "Girl, I do not know what you're talking about. Like, I have no idea."
0: I definitely said Alice Walker. I do And I was like, did. "Is it Alice Walker or Allison Walker?" And you were like, "I didn't write about <laughs> <laughs> Allison and Walker." And I'm like, "I and I mentioned it because." She was a writer that I had actually... I I had taken, like, a scholarly article of hers to to do for a class or to, like, you know, do a... Talk on for like my sculpture class, and I thought I was literally going <laughs> crazy. and I'm like, you wrote about her.
1: God. Sorry, I, I definitely I, said Alice. I really no, I just like had no idea what you were talking about yesterday. I was like, what? And then when I read this, I was like, oh, that's a chance. Don't about- you,
0: Alice Smith? Me, <laughs> you said
1: Alice Smith. Agree to disagree. Okay, well, <laughs> Alice Walker, who wrote The Color Purple started talking about, um, in specific, the Sojourner Truth plate, um, saying that it's, it's not in the shape of a vulva, so was Judy trying to mask the sexuality of Black women? And then, concurrently, we also have feminist art historians, um, feminist theorists like Kimberly Crenshaw, who start thinking about intersectionality. So all these critiques are kind of coming out that it's, it's not diverse, it's not representative. And then we also had a U.S. congressman call the piece pornographic. So if you saw on our Instagram, we I asked the question, do you think this piece is pornographic? Because the piece was supposed to be moved to D.C., actually. And then this congressman, you can watch the video online. Maybe we can link it to our resources. You can watch the congressman say this piece should not be allowed near our children. It should not be taught about. It should not be allowed in D.C. because it's pornographic. So there's a lot of different and really interesting kind of clashing points for why people didn't like the piece. Right. And so going off of that,
0: this idea of location is just such an interesting part of the dinner party because it's been moved from one place to another, it's been in storage, and now it's in a permanent location. But I want to talk about really why that matters so much. And in speaking from my own personal experiences, when I have been taught about feminism in Mm -hmm. art, we typically maybe start with like a couple other artists, maybe like Carolee Caroline Schneesman, what's her name? Caroline Schneider. Caroline
1: (laughs) Schneider. That's what I meant to say. (laughs) I feel like that's not right. I'm going to look it up. We'll look it up. I feel like you were right. Is is it Schneesman? It's not (laughs) Schnees. People are going to think we're crazy. We don't have any idea. We're a little bit crazy.
0: But why Bianca's laying that up, perhaps chat a couple more artists and then going straight into the dinner party and... I will never forget when I was taking my art history class. Okay, I got it? it. Yeah,
1: I did. Carolee Schneeman. Schneeman. Yeah. I wasn't that far off. No, you weren't. No, and... <laughs> it's embarrassing. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. We don't know anything about them to start. What are it's you talking fine. about? Case in point. This is why...
0: This is why we're here, guys. This is why we're here. But I will never forget because while I was taking this art history class, you were in the middle of writing this oh yeah i forgot about this you know writing your thesis and we had (laughs) just gone (laughs) to the brooklyn museum of art to see this piece and obviously in talking to you about it i'm like oh like this piece was supposed to be at the smithsonian and then it wasn't because literally the state would not allow to
1: house this piece if that's correct yeah well not the state but no institution wanted to house it. It's also, it's humongous, you know. Mm-hmm. With the Sackler Center, they had to build a place to put it. So it's not that the state wouldn't house it, but it was like nobody wanted it because it was so mm-hmm. controversial. And it, the additional cost got it. of housing it and building a, a place for it.
0: So with that, I, I just remember my professor being like, okay, so this is a dinner party and it's by Judy Chicago and it's at the Smithsonian. And I was like...
1: Mm. (laughs) actually. (laughs) Which is crazy too, because like the Sackler Center for Feminist Art is the only place in the whole world that's designated to feminist art. And you know how big this place is? Like the Sackler Wing is not its own museum. It's not even a whole floor. Like it is, it's not that big. And while it's fantastic and they have a great research library I know they have a head curator, an assistant curator, they have um, an admin, basically, because I was trying to, like, email them all these questions about the piece. So I don't know how how many other people work specifically with the Feminist Art Collection at the Sackler Center on a daily basis, but, like, it's part of a larger institution. So, and it's the only one of its kind. Like, the fact that art historians don't know that the, if we're going to call it that, starting work of art for feminism is not in DC. It's in the Sackler Center for Feminist Art is so wild to me. And I know, like, people make mistakes. Like, people just, you know, it happens. Like, we don't know who Carolee is, <laughs> clearly.
0: <laughs> no, that's honestly horrible. Yeah, it's just, I, I just think it's interesting, even just thinking of something as simple as the location yeah. of this piece is something that
1: I've experienced some, it, um, yeah, it's it is crazy because when you look at it, it's like it was supposed to be here. It was supposed to be here. It was in storage. It you know went on tour. It did, it did a lot of moving, mm-hmm. you know. So I get it. It's just <laughs> I think it's funny whenever you you do are so yeah, like you're so attached to something. Like whenever you in class, like you were hearing about this probably twenty four seven. So, but apparently I didn't care about no <laughs> Carolee Schneeman. <laughs> Uh, we should do an episode on her justice for carol each i feel really bad now i feel bad she she was
0: (laughs) she was really interesting and you talk about it in your thesis well you don't talk about her but um i do talk about alice walker you do talk (laughs) about alice walker i'm
1: never bringing it that now um
0: i i think that and and judy talks about it presenting feminist themes into sculpture or painting poses a lot of challenges whereas before artists were really using, like, performative art to spread these, like, feminist ideologies. Yeah. Um, it, it just seemed like in uh, a direct kind of social... It, it was like being a social be- being. So using your own body to create these messages just made a lot of logical sense. Yeah. So yeah.
1: I see you, girl. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I see you, Carolee. I see you, <laughs> Um Yeah, it is really interesting. Something that I talk about is Judy's inclination to have all these people work on this massive monumental sculpture which is not something that at the time women were doing they were using what they had they were using their bodies so it's really interesting that she took on this like massive piece of work as kind of not her coming out artwork because she mm-hmm. had been doing other things other small sculptures works on paper she took a lot of um china painting classes with Rosemary Radmaker so it's it's so and maybe that's why it's this kind of defining Piece. It's just, it is that different. Yeah. So, you had mentioned a couple terms in your
0: writings and also in talking about the piece so far. Mm -hmm. So, we want to make sure that we're discussing this piece in the right terms and then we share those with you all. So, I want to talk about the difference between womanism and intersectionality. Yeah. And how the evolution of those words fit within the history of the dinner party.
1: Yeah. So, I think it's, it's so fascinating to think about the word feminist because I think you and I, Gianna, use it, like, pretty loosely because it's so hard to <laughs> say, like, like, it's, <laughs> well, <laughs> it's exhausting to be, like, I practice intersectional feminist thought every five seconds of the day. You know what I mean? Right. It's, like, so... i stick
0: my head on a microwave. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> it's just, like, it's a lot. And so I think that even though Gianna and I are, are aware of practicing intersectionality and we replace it with kind of the word feminism, feminism still has this like negative connotation to it. Do you want to talk about your TikToks? Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> you guys, I'm a little bit hesitant. We don't know how the internet works. How does TikTok work? Can, if, if anybody if someone's is listening
0: <laughs> and would like to contribute to what is happening, for the love of God... What is this, like, algorithm that, like, TikTok has? Because, like, we have been posting something, and it'll be like, ah, oh, like, two people yeah. saw this thing. And then the next day, it's like, 1,000 people saw your video. When we have, like, five people following yeah. us. So No, we have, like, 20. Okay, 20 people following <laughs> us? I guess I just don't understand how it works. But it it's just, I don't know, it's funny. And I think... No, but, like, your yes. piece. So I posted this. Stupid TikTok <laughs> on my personal account that was it was like the the Lowe's uh, Home Depot. Home Depot. And very masculine, you know, because of quarantine, I've been like working at home in our dad's old shop. So I said, when you use dad's old tools to make some feminist AF sculpture, and you couldn't really see like the whole piece and what I was doing. But yeah, like it is a word that like, obviously, I'm very comfortable with. And, and maybe I do throw it out in very like cavalier ways or situations. And like going from like no one watching like the three videos I posted before that to what like over a thousand people watching this video I got like all these comments like confused on so many levels what is feminist about this and I'm like <laughs> you're not wrong yeah. uh, <laughs> that's a valid question but also TikTok is not a place in which I feel like I need to be having those conversations <laughs> time, so I'm just kind of scared of the internet, and TikTok is coming for me. They're, I like think so, confused on so many levels, and I'm like, well, don't judge me. You know, it's
1: just funny because I feel like going back to the word feminism, we use it so loosely. And, you know, I know that your work has you know, is feminist in nature, but I can see why you <laughs> don't that. care about me
0: or know so, who I am. So th-
1: all this to say that, like, the development of, the, of feminist practices and ideology and theory is super interesting. But at the time that Judy Chicago was making this work, she was making it in the 70s. It's at kind of this height of the second wave feminist movement, which has been extremely critiqued for only catering to white, middle to upper class, straight women. So alongside kind of the second wave movement, there was this movement of womanism, which was meant to incorporate and share the experiences of predominantly black women. So then in the, I think, 89... Kimberly Crenshaw uses this term intersectionality as not a replacement to womanism, but as a term to encompass all these different experiences, particularly of Black women. Not all Black women have the same experiences. Mm -hmm. So then that leads to intersectionality uh, being used by other feminist theorists to kind of incorporate sexuality, gender identity, class, age all these different demographics coming together in different ways. So that's kind of a a very extremely brief, not all-encompassing development of the term intersectionality, which is what I think Judy Chicago is very aware of now. So like I said, she's written four books about the dinner party, and every time she writes these books she's writing more history about the women that was in it she's trying to do more research on the women's names who are in the tiles on the floor so she is extremely aware that her piece is it is what it is basically it's made at this time it was made with these resources or or lack thereof that she had She has publicly said she would not change the dinner party, which I I don't necessarily think she should either. But the point of my thesis is to incorporate that intersectional lens. Like, how does this piece function now? How does this make us think about age? How does this make us think about race and class? Like, what can we do differently? Why should we be thinking about the dinner party in this limited second wave feminist white view? Right.
0: And I completely agree. I mean, I, I I absolutely don't think that she should go back and change anything about the dinner party, which is not obviously not something that's going to happen, but it experiencing it and the state that it is and experiencing the issues with it is just as important, I think. Mm -hmm. And why would you go back and erase a moment in history um I yeah. don't
1: think that that would serve well, yeah anybody in a positive way. Something that I talk about is nobody is asking Picasso to go back and be more inclusive. Um could you stop being an asshole? Thanks. You know what I mean? Like what museums are trying to do now is reevaluate their collection. Like te- exactly what my thesis kind of points to like tell different stories using the resources and materials and objects that they have. It's not about erasing history and trying to go back in time and do a better job. It's about educating us now. How is this impacting different communities now? Every single person has a different experience Mm -hmm. that can relate or cannot relate to this piece. But like it, these objects are a a means, a device for communication and the spread of, I think, intersectionality. So we can't continually be critiquing Judy Chicago for not doing enough, not doing a good enough job when she is continually writing about this and piece. And puts us all to shame. Yeah, <laughs> sure, like she's doing the most actually, you know she's, what I mean? Like,
0: she's out there she is out there doing, doing most. the
1: most. She is 80 years old, still producing artworks and still stuck in this critique of the dinner party that it is a symbol of feminist art that is simply not good enough. Oh my
0: gosh, girl, we see you and we love you. <laughs> Judy, if you're listening, I love you so much.
1: <laughs> we are here for you. I did try to call her one time. She didn't call me back, which is fine. <laughs> she probably doesn't want to talk about the dinner party anymore. And so I do feel bad. Now I here I am talking about the piece that she doesn't want to talk about. Well, so, okay,
0: on that note, I think this might be my last question for you, and then we're going to move on into... Dior. Dior. <laughs> um, talking about one of our contemporary moments in dealing with Judy Chicago's works and Dior fashion show. So yeah. I want to know what that driving force was for you to write about this piece, because mm-hmm. as I know, you had a lot of people telling you let's maybe not write about this piece because there are so many scholarly articles on it, so many writings about it. Obviously Mm -hmm. Judy Chicago has written like a million books about it. Like it is overdone. Let's talk about something else. Mm -hmm. But with that being said, you also pointed out a really interesting statistic in your thesis and I'm gonna read it now. You said that the National Women's History Museum they found research that showed that public United States K-12 through social studies education... Oh, sorry. I totally messed up that quote. But basically, they're saying that <laughs> in uh, social studies education, women's experiences and stories were not being well integrated into the U.S. state history standards. Mm-hmm. So our public education is not teaching women's history mm-hmm. up to the standards that that state holds. Yeah, And... For me, and knowing that, you know, we both went to the same high school, I remember in learning about U.S. history, we had Women's Week. Mm -hmm. And we talk about all these important moments in women's history Mm -hmm. and we wrap them up in one lovely little week and then we're done with it. And that was the first time my senior year of high school, I had a teacher ask me, do you know what feminism is Mm -hmm. and are you a feminist? Yeah. So I just think my personal relationship and in being formally educated on Mm -hmm. feminism was kind of lacking and then literally as I was about to graduate that was the first time I was asked that question Mm -hmm. um so I'm just curious if like your own educational experiences influenced your decision to write about this
1: piece yeah I think at the time I didn't realize it because I was you know when you're in grad school at least for me I was trying to find that thing that really helped me feel comfortable in expressing my voice and trying to figure out even how to be a grad student and how to write this thesis. So when I realized, you know, I had these two papers and I was kind of piecing them together, I realized I was extremely, I guess, comfortable talking about the dinner party. The more I dug in, I I realized art history can use the dinner party to apply all these other different concepts to it. So it feels very stagnant like i said before it's kind of stuck in this in this very specific place in time like it is the beginning of feminist art history but as i started writing i you know looked at it like okay let's talk about women's labor how did women's labor how does that compare to labor in the art world now like why is judy chicago consistently being critiqued for having all these volunteers work on the project When other male artists, other contemporary male artists are doing the same thing and getting praised? Or how do we talk about unpaid volunteers in the art world? How do we talk about ornament? How do we talk about feminist spaces and museum spaces? So as I just started writing, I realized like these are all these questions that I was forming kind of in my daily life. You know, I think Me Too and museums starting to encourage this kind of other storytelling and looking at other people and trying to increase diversity in their collection, like all this was kind of happening at the same time. And it's, it felt very, it felt very relevant. And I felt very comfortable kind of exploring something that may seem overdone. But in reality, I do think that I ended up telling kind of a different story or, or not even a different story, something that can be put to use. And that was my, my biggest goal. Wow. Well, oh wow! Just wow!
0: Thank you for putting this wonderful work um, out into the world that I think is important. I think that is needed. I think that there's a place for it. Wow, there's a place for you, my dear. Oh my god! So wow! Just thank you. And you're right. It was it was good. I was like, wow! I'm so proud of her. I'm sorry I, I didn't read. It's this It's just before. hard because
1: we're, I mean we're already almost an hour in, and I i want to talk (laughs) about so much more but (laughs) well we'll we'll do other episodes (laughs) we definitely want to do one on ornament and then we have to do one on the sackler center because it is fascinating and i have a lot of thoughts on it but Yeah. yeah that's that is the beginning of the dinner party in a nutshell So we are going
0: to take a short break, but when we come back, we are going to be talking about a very recent collaborative project in which Judy Chicago worked with the Dior Fashion House.
1: Welcome back. Gianna and I were just you know brushing up on our French skills. Well you were. (laughs) I think they're pretty good. (laughs) I know I need to
0: keep practicing. I on the other hand um sound like Steve Martin and
1: Pink Panther. Which also you should know is one of our favorite movies so if we just all of a sudden start quoting the Pink Panther or or any other movie just like (laughs) Yeah, it's just what we do. It's bound to happen. Mm. Um, but
0: Pink Panther is like just such ah uh, such a good movie that it really is. Just, I highly encourage you all watch it. And I also feel like <laughs> Pink Panther is also very such on brand
1: with them. You know.
0: Well, I just feel like it's like it'll be good with like our flow.
1: <laughs> oh, totally! All, all the, of pink. the pink, yeah. Um,
0: but it's a good movie, and there are just some really good <laughs> <laughs> obscure references in there
1: that we'll might- probably drop. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, jumping from Pink Panther back to Judy, we just wanted to talk about kind of what she's doing currently. So in January 2020, Dior had their spring fashion show in Paris at the Musée Rodin. In 2019, Judy Chicago was approached by the first Female creative director of Dior, Maria Grazia Curie, and asked Judy to kind of partner with Dior to create this really engaging show for Dior. So it was really interesting because Maria had.
0: Actually, she had come to Dior, she's the first female creative director at Dior, and she had already started these other projects incorporating other feminist writers and other feminist artists. Um, I think one of them was Penny Slinger, who Mm -hmm. does a lot of like collage, mixed media, photograph work. And Cindy Sherman, Oh, was Cindy Sherman one of yeah. them? Oh, cool. Um, so she had already done these collaborative feminist projects and she had mentioned in an in interview where she had made a statement saying that, you know, she'd love to work with Judy Chicago. She was on her list. So when Judy was uh, approached by Maria to start this project, it was originally going to be this ready-to-wear show, which Judy was not on board with she said if we are gonna like do this show and if if i'm gonna be part of this it really needs to be something that's elevated so therefore it needs to be a couture show it needs to be something with high fashion because what we need to be creating here is art and we need to break away from what are we creating here and it's not going to be for purely commercial purposes
1: yeah and i thought it was fascinating that judy kind of said I love how we call her Judy. Also, like, like we're we on, know her. Like, yeah, like she's like our best friend or something. Well, it's also,
0: I mean, I think you said it, but you know, her last name isn't really Chicago.
1: She was born Judith Cohen, mm-hmm. but she changed her name to Chicago anyway. So. But I thought it was really interesting in these articles preparing for this show. Judy said, "This is going to be a show made by women for women and for women's bodies, not made by men." To put on women for the observance of other men. Right. So
0: then, of course, Maria understanding these ideas and wanting to be as open to the artist's viewpoint as possible. She was like, absolutely, let's do it. And so they extended
1: the project and they met up a couple times to talk about it. Yeah, so Judy invited Maria to her home in Santa Fe. Which was really
0: funny because we will list the articles that we read in our resources page on our mm-hmm. website but judy was so funny and she was like i i think they thought i lived in new york yeah <laughs> they were really i think
1: a little startled or or they were just caught off guard when they were like yeah. where are we going Or going yeah. to new mexico <laughs> so the final project basically ended up being this enormous tent like structure that housed the show but the tent itself was in the shape of this female divine figure that judy has actually been working on kind of since the 70s and you can actually buy these little they're almost like um little venus figures Mm -hmm. and you can buy them in the form of like soap bars at the brooklyn museum and stuff like that like they're kind of like a little knickknack form but then she transformed it into this huge tent Mm -hmm. and then The runway was this kind of carpet of flowers. And then at the end of the runway, in the tent, there was this big woven banner, kind of like the banners that are hung for the dinner party. And it reads, what if women ruled the world? And then surrounding these other banners, I think there's like 10 other questions that are asked on embroidered banners, both in English and in French. Like, what if women and men were gentle? Or what if... um, what are the other ones I forget now? Um,
0: yeah, what if women ruled the world? There was one about violence. It was like, would there be violence? Oh,
1: yeah, would there be war? Well, yeah. I- <laughs> we should share those images too.
0: Yeah, I-, I think just in general, posing really interesting questions for a alternative world and in, in which is one we
1: don't live in. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting for a fashion house to kind, to kind of ask these questions, what if women rule the world? Because fashion seems like such a women-ruled world, I guess. Like, the world well, of fashion seems very women-based, but it's in reality run by men. Yeah, I feel like it's, it's kind of hand in hand. Like, it is and it
0: isn't at the mm-hmm. same time. And it's important to point out that Judy was actually really um, apprehensive and in getting involved with this project because for years she had this view of the fashion industry and how it goes against, you know, what she believes in. you know, who are these men telling us what to wear and telling us also what our bodies should look like. I, I think that's where she became. Increasingly interested in Maria's involvement in the project, and mm. I think that really like solidified the the relationship between them and and this kind of collaborative project. Yeah. Also, once they moved forward and they knew it was going to be this um, couture fashion show, Maria wanted the catwalk to actually be in the shape of a triangle, and she wanted it to be yeah. about the dinner party. But as you said earlier. Judy's whole thing has been to get out under the shadow that the general party has created and and try to really create something new. Mm -hmm. And this was really, this was going to be the platform to really create that new thing.
1: Yeah, it's really incredible. And I love her statement Throughout all these interviews she did for this project, Judy was saying, this is a chance for us to make art. I want to make art and I want to put something good into the world because I think there is some critique on the fashion world, you know, there, and that's absolutely valid. And I find it so interesting that Judy, te- I feel like she tends to straddle these controversial collaborations, you know what I mean? Like, is it okay for an, a feminist... An artist to work with what multi-million dollar fashion house? It's right. so fascinating. And the and the point for her was she just wants to make art. She wants to do something good. She wants to educate women. So all of those woven banners were done with a school in Mumbai that educates young girls about textiles and embroidery. Because in, actually yeah, yeah in India embroidery is a male-dominated art form mm-hmm. which is fascinating yeah and that
0: in Mumbai that
1: <laughs> I don't <laughs> know <the> what <laughs> I'm looking for uh
0: the place in which they do the embroidery oh it's that, like a school the, the school. Dior Dior
1: funds okay
0: works exclusively with Dior so yeah Judy saw that as an opportunity you know to kind of create yeah. that
1: collaboration educate women in terms of my thesis, in the first chapter, I talk about this problem of collaborative workspace or a volunteer workspace that Judy had in making up the dinner party. And it was kind of the same thing with these banners for the Dior show. I was wondering where are the women or the girls who worked on those banners? Like, were they invited to the Dior show? I just thought that was like super interesting. I want to know more about them. Right. Well, and it actually is interesting in as we continue on with the
0: podcast, we will dive into other chapters of your work, but yeah. we didn't talk about too much the controversy with the volunteers who worked yeah. on Judy's piece a lot, but there are very interesting similarities here, mm-hmm. But and I think there will be with a lot of her projects that we look on, look at because she is a person who works on collaborative projects yeah. from anything such as The Woman House yeah. to now, so you can't ignore those factors
1: right when looking at her work so this quote from judy says what i think now about the relationship between art and fashion is that fashion can really be a vehicle for meaningful art i think this can be a whole other model for how worlds of art and fashion can collaborate that's not about commercialism or taking old master paintings and slapping them on purses art has to be more than the marketplace it has to mean something and when I read this, I immediately took this as a dig at Jeff Koons and his collaboration with Louis Vuitton. So Jeff Koons's line with Louis Vuitton specifically takes old master paintings and literally slaps them onto a bag, and says it's you know that's like Fragonard, Titian, Da Vinci, you know, and it they sell for like two grand. I was like, yeah, this last night. I kind of want one though. So <laughs> well, and we
0: were talking about this the other day but it is interesting cuz obviously the fashion world it's a company they're there to make money and we yeah. understand that and do those things still have a place in the art world those exclusive designer bags created by Takashi Murakami or uh you know or Jeff Koons like i think it's arguable that those things do have a place but needless to say that is it's okay mm-hmm. and obviously i'm yeah. here that that is not judy's vision mm-hmm. and in creating this i mean essentially what she's
1: creating is an installation yeah like i just wonder i i think this was received extremely well but are we gonna get mad at judy chicago for doing this collaborative project with a fashion house and not get mad at jeff coons for slapping old masterworks onto a bag and selling them for two grand like i just right. wonder like i am curious to know a little bit more feedback since this happened in january shit kind of hit the fan a little bit right after that, but I'm curious if this will become part of her larger work and if it will receive any similar critique since it is such a massive collaborative effort. And it it is really interesting too, and we also listened
0: to a podcast, um, an interview with Judy Chicago, and she talked about, it stated in her contract after doing this project, Mm -hmm. is she's not actually allowed to take on another collaborative project with another fashion house for like another five Five years years. yeah but Judy also stated that she was like that's just not even gonna happen even Mm -hmm. if it wasn't in my contract she's still a a busy woman and I Mm -hmm. think that it was so wonderful to see this idea of the female goddess come to fruition for her yeah. because it is an idea that has happened for so long, which I think it is why she found it so extremely satisfying and why mm-hmm. we found it extremely yeah. satisfying. But also it, it kind of she made it sound like
1: this is this kind of like one time thing. I definitely think it is. I mean, she is. She's gone 81. Mm -hmm. Not that she yeah, not that she won't be producing work, but it was an enormous undertaking. That happened fairly quickly. Like they came Mm -hmm. to her in 2019. So for her to create all these banners, have them embroidered, visualize the tent, make the carpet, that's a that is a ton to happen in the year. I mean, the dinner party in retrospect was much smaller. It's only forty, you know, 48 feet by 48 feet by 48. And that took almost five years so it's really interesting but I feel so I'm so happy for her and I just want the best for her I think she is one of the most extremely self-aware artists that I've studied she's just like she's incredibly vocal absolutely
0: I think too yeah as she's kind of of course like You know, she's been through a lot, and I think, like, she has a thick skin, of course. Like, not that she doesn't care what anybody thinks, but I think the way that she's kind of come into her own, especially when we're looking at her now, she has, like, dyed her hair purple as the (laughs) symbol of, like, kind of royalty. Yeah. You know? (laughs) She looked like a queen on the runway. She did, and she had this, like, custom-made, like, gold suit. So she's killing it. Before we end this topic, I think it was really cool, too, that this... The event and the fashion show happened, mm-hmm. but then afterwards, the installation was still set up. Yes. um, in the garden, so people could come and experience it yeah. and view it like a piece of
1: artwork. Yeah, that was really um, admirable. I think on Dior's part, it's not something that was. I mean, it's a fashion show at the end of the day. I think it's a little exclusive, but mm. the fact that the tent remained and the banners remained, and you could also like, could you walk the runway? Like, could you just like walk down this yeah. carpet? You know what I mean? Like, that feels very empowering, and then to be walking down this carpet, reading these messages, like, as a a viewer of art, not a viewer or audience member or participant of this, like, fashion show, Mm -hmm. but to be in this space, potentially alone, I guess, or with a smaller crowd, seems incredible.
0: Right. And I also, I haven't looked into what the actual pieces of fashion look like that were displayed yeah. in the show as well. So that would be interesting to go look at, too. Compare. We can find some images and yeah. maybe drop them under the resources page. But also, th- the last thing, too, was we were talking
1: about where this was located in a legit oh, yes. sculpture garden. From one of the fathers, basically, of modern sculpture. And mm-hmm. to put this massive goddess structure in the middle of the Rodin sculpture garden...
0: And I just, I think it's so great, too. There there are already so many great resources. We found amazing coverage for this topic. And, yeah. Um, especially on Dior's Instagram, Judy's Instagram. Yeah. There's a podcast interview about it.
1: And I also wanted to highlight the Great Women Artists Instagram. Katie Hessel is the curator from London who's doing all these Dior talks. But she also has an Instagram called Great Women Artists. And the interview with Judy was really fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Wow, that was a lot, but not a lot. You know, I could feel like we we talked about like scratch the surface of the dinner party. I know. I feel it, it. really is hard to
0: to cut yourself off, especially with the Dior show. I think there's a lot more we could both say, but yeah, I think we'll make sure to include these images for you all, just so you can experience it on your own. You know, too. At the end of the day, think I don't want to. Honestly, dictate our like listeners' like opinions about things. At yeah, the same absolutely time too. not. So leaving leaving some things unsaid for you all to you know experience yeah. it on your own, which is equally just as important.
1: Or if we have any misinformation or like misquoted someone or anything like that, we have a Gmail. You can email us art at gmail.com Please like give us your feedback. You can DM us, a message us on Facebook twitter whatever but please like don't hesitate to send us emails or ask follow-up questions or whatever yeah absolutely and of course i'm only human and we might get some artist names and references yeah.
0: mixed up a little we bit we may
1: not know who Carly Schneeman is but yeah. we have an email you can tell us about her <laughs> we hope that this gives you a little bit more insight than
0: episode one did into kind of the structure of how we're going to be continuing the podcast so i think we're both
1: really excited about it just you know we're practicing so let us know what you think if you liked it if you didn't like (laughs) it you can leave us a review on apple Podcasts. we are on apple Podcasts now have been approved we're on spotify stitcher you can find us on our website. We also have a YouTube channel now, so our episodes are going up on YouTube, and we're hoping to start producing some kind of visual content, so look forward to our Mother's Day episode. We'll be doing a video along with that, and we'll have our next podcast episode will be all about mothers of art history and Mother's Day, so we're so excited. All right, any other last minute thoughts? I don't think
0: so. Thank you guys for sticking to the end and we'll talk to you next week. All right. Bye
1: guys.